Welcome to Inside Seaweed, the podcast looking deep into the seaweed industry through the stories of pioneers, entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm Fred de Gobbi and my guest today is Simon Johansson, CEO of Nordic Sea Farm, a company that is growing seaweed in Sweden. They are exploring different species beyond kelp, including sea lettuce or ova and dolls, which I think you'll find interesting. They are also developing food products, which we will talk about in our conversation. Simon has a background in management consulting, and I am sure you will quickly appreciate how this has given him a unique perspective and vision of the industry. Now, enough of me talking. Here it goes. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So today we're going to talk a lot about food. So I wanted to ask you first, what is your favorite seaweed recipe? Yeah, I, to be honest, I have many seaweed recipes that I like, but uh, my top favorite is actually a homemade pesto, which you can either make from uh, frozen and blanched sugar kelp, which is one of the products we do, but you can also make it with dried at home, which is sometimes easier to, to store and so on. And you can mix it uh, and make it uh, not free and so on, but usually I, I mix it with uh, some seeds and some cheese, and it's super tasty, especially to a fish dish, like a salmon or so on. I bet. So you, you cook it yourself? Yeah, but I also like ready to use dishes, to be honest. Like uh, yeah. I'm not, uh, what do you say? Uh, I don't spend too much time in the kitchen. So I like <laughs> uh, things that are kind of easy to get going when yeah. doing stuff. So it's not difficult to make anyway? No, it's, it's quite straightforward. You just mix it all into a blender and there you go. And there, there is a, um, a good quantity of seaweed in that or is it just a little? No. Adding a little bit of flavor. Yeah, I think the good thing about pesto, you can go quite high in the seaweed share of the total dish. So I think you can go up 30, 40% without it you know, taking over. Sometimes, especially with dried seaweed, it can really take over the flavor if you only use like 5 or 10%. But if you use the, the blanched one and frozen, you can go up to 30% and still get a really delicious dish. And what seaweed is it? Is it kelp? That's kelp. So that's sugar kelp. We do mix a bit with uh, sea lettuce or ulva, also called right now, which we do farm in the ocean, but uh, we do farm most, most of sugar kelp today. Would you go from fresh or uh, dried? So usually we, we blanch it. So it's basically you boil it for two minutes and then freeze it really fast. Fresh is more delicious, I would say, but it's only fresh during the harvest season, which is usually in April, May. So if you want to do fresh pesto with, with fresh, fresh seaweed, you can do it kind of two months <laughs> in a year. That's it. Yeah. But otherwise, the, we, we do have a processing partner, actually a vegetable producer, that uh, is, they process a lot of vegetables. So you can do the same thing with kelp. So you boil it for two minutes in the freezer, and there you go. You have a really good product that's not so slimy either when you pick it out the freezer. Okay, look, we, we are going to go straight into the big and important stuff. Got a lot to talk about. So we're going to start with nothing less than the global food crisis. There you go. Yeah. So over the next 25 years or so, the human population is estimated to grow by another 2 billion or so globally. So we're going to get close to about sorry, about 10 billion in total. Mm. Food production may need to double in order to feed everybody. Obviously, this is a rough estimate, but bear with me. Yeah. Yeah. Land-based agriculture isn't gonna is already using about half of all habitable land on Earth. Mm. So the big question is, how do we do this? And of course, one of the answer is that we're going to have to grow a lot more food out at sea. Yeah. How would you summarize your vision for how the ocean can play a role in this? Yeah. First of all, I want to yeah reconnect to what you said. Arable land is shrinking. So either we need to use that arable land way more efficient or we need new ways to farm food for the next generation. And I think we need to do both. And looking at the data, land-based agriculture is not going to cut it long-term. So yeah, we do need to use the ocean way more. It covers about 70% of the earth. So I think we need to use it wisely, not uh, mess up the ecosystem more than we're all, <laughs> we've already done. And I mm -hmm. think also going, yeah, need for more plant-based products with a low climate footprint, I think then... Obviously, plants or seaweed from the ocean is a, is a really powerful solution in doing so. I do really believe we need to use fish more also, but in a more sustainable way. 
but uh, I think Seaward is a really underutilized product doing so. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it makes me happy to speak about it, and we know we're going to be dig more into the problem, but that's kind of the, the big ways that I see it. And um, Yeah, no, thanks for that. Yeah. So, so let, let's go a bit more into the, the nitty-gritty of it. Sure. First of all, let's start from the somewhat negative side. Sure. What is or what do you see as the biggest obstacle toward achieving this? Is it supply? Is it demand? Is it technology? Yeah, I think it's a bit, a bit of both. But if you just look at the global seaweed market, it's really big. You do eat seaweed in Asia and you've done it for a long time. And it's kind of part of the food system. I usually say that you eat seaweed in Asia like you eat pasta in Europe. It's kind of part of your daily cuisine and you eat it. It's not part of the cuisine here in Europe. But I think it mainly boils down to like two things. One is then the food culture. And number two, I think it's also product market fit. Because I would say supply is there for certain species, especially sugar kelp and to some extent maybe sea lettuce and, and palmaria. But I think there's way too less or too little innovation in seaweed. I would say too little innovation in, in plant-based, making really tasty products, and especially within the seaweed sector. So let, let's take a, a step back. Yeah. Um, you mentioned product market fit. So in order to achieve product market fit, first we need to go through a problem-solution fit, right? Mm-hmm. So from the point of view of the customer, yeah. What is the problem that we're trying to solve for them? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it's it's many. Right now, you you can eat like you've done before. You can eat meat and potatoes like you did in Sweden for <laughs> for a long time. But looking also at the, at the climate footprint and uh, how we're gonna use our resources wisely. Yeah. Yeah, that's not gonna cut it, right? So we need to find uh, new ways. It's within the planetary boundaries, I would say. And to eat with planetary boundaries so we can have a habitable planet for our next generations. We need to do that with, with low climate footprints. And I would say then seaweed is one of the truly the best solutions in doing so. Also adding to that plant based from land will also go down. I think there's quite some urgency to find how can we use this kind of powerful crop to do both tasty products that are high in nutrition and also are, yeah, good for the planet. So do you think there is the perception from from the potential customers of a problem when it comes to to climate change is the are the the concerns over climate change generating this demand do you think to a certain extent maybe to a certain customer group are open and really feel the pressing but I also don't feel a sense of urgency unfortunately for many customers that it's really when you have data in your face that you can take action but in terms of food, taste is so important. You cannot understate it like too much. So I think it's really, you really need to work a lot with chefs and the food developers and so on to unlock the potential that it actually has. It's, it can taste super great. We, we sold seaweed to the Nobel Prize dinner this winter, for example. So you can do a lot of good things with seaweed, but right now it's kind of been, uh, it's either in the sushi you eat uh, a lot of, seaweed or you do it at fine dining restaurants or at this, it has been so in Sweden at least. But that's not going to cut it, right? That's not going to be enough. No, it's not going to cut it. So in order to really democratize seaweed and make it available to, to the masses, you need to have more food producing companies and innovators to, to do so. Mm. So it's both in terms of the end consumer demanding it, but I would also say it's the power lies within yeah, big food corporations actually to, to make this available and work with their daily ingredient base. No, that's, that's really interesting. And... Rightly or wrongly, we're actually going to see, you know, that a lot of the developing countries that will increase in population in the next few years will likely increase the demand for meat, which, you know, as people become more wealthy, which almost goes the opposite direction. Yeah. So in terms of marketing, which, you know, ultimately is going to come down to developing a market for seaweed products. Where are we now? Do you, where, where do you think we are now? Is is there a market for seaweed products or do we need to, does it need to be developed entirely? Uh, there is a small market, I would say. We've sold products since 2016 and there was actually some chefs knocking on the door to a seaweed farm and then it was basically a research company. And they said, wow, you grow seaweed in Sweden. We want more locally produced products. Mm-hmm. We want uh, the taste of seaweed and the umami flavor. But right now we only import it from Asia. So they were super happy, but it was also kind of food nerds, I would say, mm. looking for 
taste, uh, what do you say? Novel. Yeah, both taste explosions and more uniqueness yeah. in that sense. Yeah. And one food company did a seaweed burger back in the days. But it was also kind of uh, a bit hard to know to work with a new raw material, a new crop that kind of behaves differently from maybe land-based crops. So I say one thing is to, to educate the masses also there. But I also hear, I think, the need for, for product innovation to work both with, you know, taste leaders, mainly chefs and restaurants. But then I think the middle part is, is maybe missing to middle and both small, middle and large size food producers, how to industrialize seaweed products and make it more, uh, yeah, more industrial products, because that's where you need to go if you want to make it available. So what could be the strategy to develop that sort of mid and large level market downstream? That's that's a good question. I think you need both push and pull here. So first of all, you need good seaweed species to work with. And uh, I think sugar kelp is, is good, but it also has a lot of drawbacks, to be honest. It's kind of high in iodine. It's uh, a bit big and bulky. And I think we used to cultivate it to get uh, energy sources for maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And then sugar kelp was best in class. But looking at the yeah. taste and, and so on, I think there, there are more species that's a bit more attractive. Sea lettuce is one of them. I think palmaria is one of them. So sea lettuce is a green algae or it's a green seaweed that, that grows naturally. It's a bit harder to grow scalable in the ocean. We actually managed to solve that. So I'm going to have our first harvest of 20 tons this spring, which we're super keen about. So I think you need to widen the scope also. What, what is seaweed and how can it be used for and kind of push more seaweed, attractive seaweed species to the market. And on the other hand, I think you need to influence people that seaweed can be something to eat. It can be really delicious. It's not just something slimy that touches your foot when you're swimming in the ocean, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's a big question. How do we make products more, how do we make seaweed products more appealing to the public? Yeah, and I think when we speak with customers, there's a lot of curiosity out there. So I don't believe that the biggest bottleneck. It's also a lot of people ask the question, how do I take action? Where can I buy it? And uh, you can buy it in, in raw form, obviously, from our website or at, at wholesalers. But I think the, the need for a bit more, sometimes we call it half products, that you do process the seaweed into more available formats. It could be a fond, like in floating form. It could be some kind of spread. It could basically anything that's not just seaweed in the freezer, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to sound a bit cheeky, maybe, but... Um... Do we need the customers to want the seaweed itself? Or is there a way to make seaweed more widespread without having the customer buy-in, if you know what I mean? Yes. Could we, you know, again, this is going to sound horrible, uh, yeah. but can, can it be hidden into, you know, nobody asked us as customers whether we wanted soy in our diet, yeah. but yet it's everywhere, right? Yeah. Can seaweed play a role in that sense of, becoming an ingredient that maybe isn't the, the star ingredient. Yeah. But it's it's significant in volume. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Like to the first, I think we do eat seaweed in a lot of products, like in gelatin and so on, or in uh, sauces. So it's it's a gelling agent for especially wild harvested seaweed. So we do eat more of it uh, than we do. But on the other hand, I think we, we need to kind of both squeeze it into products Mm-hmm. and make the customer experience it. Like nobody knows you want it until you have it in your front of you. It's the same with an iPad, for example. I didn't have an, a demand for iPad, but then I got one and I like it. And I think hopefully it can be the same with seaweed or with soy or, or, or anything in that sense. But I, I do think the key is to unlock it, is to, to work more close with yeah, both customers, but also here food developers. And I think having taken an example, what I see today in Europe, there's kind of a fragmented market within seaweed cultivation. There's a lot of cultivators. But when I look at the employee, like lists what the companies do, there's so many companies that only do cultivation. And basically, all sometimes nobody in sales. It's maybe the CEO or some COO, right? So you don't have too many people in um, mm. sales, product development, marketing. You're just a bulk producer, which kind of is kind of fine if you're an established market, but I don't feel that the seaweed market is that yet. So there's popping up a few ones now by refineries, food product companies. And I really like that because from my point of view, this is a joint effort of making seaweed available. 
until we do get the bottleneck, which is a bit about to happen now, I think 2023. I see some colleagues in the business that are always already booking up the harvests for the spring. So I think it's going to be a demand game in three or four years time for sure. But uh, until then, we need to unlock more food innovations in the middle segments. So maybe more energy, more minds focused on who's going to buy the seaweed. What, yeah, I think so. How do we, do we create a downstream? Yeah, exactly. I think upstream and downstream. And I think also the more you cultivate upstream, the price will go down. Like all uh, in other society with food prices and inflation, prices go up, right? We are already at, at peak capacity for a lot of land-based crops and meat. But seaweed will go down. I think it will go, go down maybe... 25% of what the cost is today, right? So that will go the opposite because we don't cultivate at scale yet. So that's kind of interesting. Hold that thought. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Yeah. Before sure. we move on, I wanted to ask you, uh, I wanted to come back to the quantity matter because we're talking about making an impact. We're talking about the ocean playing a role. There is a big issue here, the way I would see it. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. In order to make an impact, there will need to be a considerable amounts, huge, huge quantities, mm-hmm. and fairly quickly. Yeah. So considering this, considering that trying to change culture, trying to get the customers buy-in and slowly change mm-hmm. the diet potentially through small, small improvements, small changes in, in culture, feels like it's not going to give us the volume that, that is needed and mm-hmm. in the speed that is needed to yeah. make a big impact. Sorry, a bit of a, link, a long um, introduction to basically to basically say, okay, well, if this is the, the sort of the, the premise, mm. what form could seaweed products take in order to have that significant impact? Yeah, true. I think looking at the, the big markets and I think there's two sides, maybe look at the size of price, like how, how big is the market and how can you make a big volume out of that, but also look to, okay, what, what, what functional value can, can seaweed bring? Mm-hmm. And one thing is, is of course the taste enhancer. That's how it started a big flavor of umami. So that brings you to maybe the Asian fusion, uh, that we have a lot of restaurants buying. You can obviously do it in, in plant-based meats. One customer actually did it to, to mask the, the soy tastes when doing a, a burger. So like uh, you got you got a bite taste from the soy and you use seaweed and umami to kind of cover it and they two kind of blend well well together. I think you kind of have to look quite what do you say deep down and dig into okay what what functional properties do actually seaweed have and where can it create value. And uh, and also with the obviously within the seaweed or not seaweed but seafood industry. Since it do come with a bit of ocean taste if you don't process it much. So I think there's a lot of value to be to be played there also. So when you say functional role, yeah, you're thinking, for example, not necessarily taste, but it could be structure, it could be texture. Yes, I think that's what you say. Yeah, exactly. I think you you need to look. Yeah, taste is one the most important I would say, but the second is the is the texture, of course, because the mouth feel is is very personal. So I think uh, a few companies within the biorefinery space developed an uh, an ocean or a seaweed fiber. Yeah, that's also one one replacement for plant-based meats. So I, I think that's that's one way to go, but it could also be uh, in uh, yeah, take a pesto for example. I think it it can really add some value there because for pesto it's kind of should be a bit creamy. It should be kind of resemblance to to basil or something, and I think the blanche seaweed there or the blanche kelp does that. So I think the functional characteristics are super important because it's food. Food is super personal. Then obviously you have nutrition that I think we see a trend to go more for a clean label that when you look and you eat, for example, uh, yeah, say a bar, for example, uh, an energy bar, uh, and you look on the backside, sometimes you see 35 ingredients and you wonder, what is this? <laughs> I'm going to put this in my body. And we see at least in Sweden uh, right now where you, you shrink it and you have maybe six or seven ingredients max. So I think there can see, we can also play a, a big role because it do have a lot of nutrients. Kelp is in carbohydrates. The sea lettuce, for example, we grow is, is high in protein, about 30% in dried, dried form, which is quite good. It's almost like you're above meat and almost to soy. So that's uh, that can it can really make a difference there. That's so, sea lettuce. Yeah, that's sea lettuce. Wow, impressive. So that's that's really good. So I think, uh, and also then the third, and I think it's the climate footprint. So we do work with a Swedish company called Carbon Cloud which measures the uh, climate footprint of, of the products. And we, we know that seaweed has a benefit and uh, 
if you just look at the cultivation, it's actually truly regenerative. Obviously, when you're in a food product, it doesn't become regenerative because it comes out in the atmosphere again, right? Yeah, but yeah. Compared to what you're substituting, usually meats or other kind of plants on land, seaweed is better at climate footprint wise. So I think the taste barrier needs to be overcome first, then maybe the texture, then maybe nutrition, and then climate, obviously. So if we, it could be something like if you look at meat replacements, for example, I'm thinking beetroots. You know how beetroots. Yeah are used pretty much as a color element. I mean, yeah. don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I <laughs> I know that plant-based burgers are often quite nice and pink. Yes. And my understanding is that a lot of that is given by beetroots being uh, one of the ingredients. So yeah. could seaweed play a role in maybe not necessarily the main taste element, but maybe it has a role to play in providing some other elements that are needed yeah. in, the, in that food product that is not maybe the, the key element, but it's like a side. Yeah, I think so. Function. I think so. I think if you look to, um, yeah, I think uh, alternative fish, for example, that you want to have an ocean flavor, that's a, that's a good example. And we work with a few actors in the space. I think also doing kind of poke bowls and, and kimchi. We also usually have some uh, either Asian dishes or salads or kimchi and so on. Uh, so we can absolutely absolutely add value. But it's also going what you can do with the new crop. Yeah, we I usually internally have the example of green kale. I'm not sure how uh, widespread it's. It's very widespread in Sweden now. I would say it was a really unsexy crop for like 15 years ago. Yeah, but then it kind of happened a lot. It you know it's kind of it tastes a bit odd when you eat it, but if you do it in the oven, if you pour some some oil on it, if you mix it into a salad, it can become quite delicious. And it really did a journey just in like five years time. So a lot of both chefs and hobby chefs and uh, food blogs and so on just use green kale. Super nutrition. It gets a crunchy feeling if you do it. Know how to to work with it. And I think that's kind of how you we see seaweed as well, and it's how it can be. It needs to be in the right setting, but going from a kind of unsexy crop to being really sexy, it starts with, okay, can we put, make a thousand recipes out of this and make it tasty? Yeah. And that's so, how it starts. So to go against my own argument from earlier, actually, it is possible to change the market quickly. It is, it is possible to change public perception very quickly. Yeah. I would say so. Like for green kale, it took maybe five years and then it was on everybody's plates. Mm. I think you can do it, but you, you need to do it and work kind of both from a push and pull side, right? The product needs to be good enough to work with, but then it's all about, you know, making the most with the market, with uh, influencing people how to eat it and giving them tools how to use it, which is basically recipes and restaurants that don't uh, are, you know, too exclusive for people to afford eating at. So, um, it sounds like we need to talk to the food industry, the food <laughs> manufacturers, right? Yeah, do you have a number? Uh, <laughs> let me, let me have a look. Do they know, do, do you feel, you know, I, I don't know if we're speculating or I don't know if this is something you've been, you, you had any exposure to, but um, do you know, or do you have a feel for how aware is the food industry of the existence and the role that seaweed could play? Some actors are. But it, it's also, it takes some effort to change your old habits. So we do, we're mainly a business provider, an ingredient provider. But to be honest, we're also sometimes frustrated of food producers being too slow, making products, being in a you know product pipeline, launching, when you still have your kind of core business. So we do like to work with, with growing companies that's small and on a growing path, wanting to differentiate oh, else, because that's easier to get in. They are a bit more fast paced. And uh, we also thought about a lot about if and how we might create an own brand within this, most likely with a partner, because we need to speed up adoption and inspire people and show them that seaweed products can be good. I think they are kind of aware, but sometimes they're too slow. And I think that's the, the thing for, for most, but, but also an opportunity for new entrants to actually make a difference. So you think it's more likely that a disruptor coming in will have more of a chance of adopting seaweed than an established business. Yeah, I think so. Like, look at maybe, yeah, take an example like Beyond Meat or Oatly, like two classic examples that really did a journey. Like, uh, it wasn't a big meat company that said, okay, we're going to increase our share of plant-based. 
Like it's here's the fast yeah. burger, right? It yeah. needs to be a new entrant just, you know, disrupting the industry and, and doing good stuff. And I think it's the same with Oatly. They worked a lot. They worked for 20 years and it kind of fit kind of well together with both technology. They had a product, splash of marketing and brand genius, you know, <laughs> and then boom, yeah. they're there. So the product had to be good enough and they worked for 20 years making the product good. And then it was all about marketing, but uh, then they kind of shook up the whole milk industry, I would say, and really mm. made a difference and uh, made people feel and care. And they did that really good. Is the industry lacking knowledge and expertise in how to do the marketing, how to understand the customers, how to create a successful food product? Like I would say, a normal food product, I think... Uh, there, there's quite well uh, established. Like the food industry, sometimes people say the food industry is broken. I would say sometimes it, it's highly efficient of transporting calories from one place to another mm-hmm. in the food. Uh, they're going from a lot of, you know, highly efficient supply chains, but it's also a, a risk when you have so efficient supply chains that new ingredients or new products cannot really enter and your kind of basis with the current status quo. So I would say we're too slow and too, uh, what do you say? It's a lot of inertia in these companies. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really big drawback when looking at the, the big, especially the big companies. But there's a lot of curiosity, though. Yeah, but uh, from what you're saying, not a lot of quick change. No, I would say it usually starts local also. We work with local actors to get a product and to get it out. It's hard to go to go big bang, but we do see a lot of things happening within branding and I think a lot of new entrants are, are shaking up things. Also in Scandinavia, I think uh, Tex-Mex or Tacos is a really big thing. We've had basically one or two large incumbents in Tacos and now there's a new entrant called El Taco Truck in Sweden, which I really like. And they're, you know, hmm. pink and they're really popping in the shelves and doing kind of some new weird products, but uh, they're kind of shaking up the industry that's been there for 20, 30 years. So I think more new bold food brands, it is happening, but the products also need to be good enough. And in this case, they are. Yeah. So if these new entrants, these bold, small players, they won't necessarily be coming from the big established food industry. They will need to come from an industry that is potentially closer and more in tune with the seaweed industry. Yeah. Another way to look at it could be the seaweed industry could create these players yeah. from within, right? Yeah, sure. How do we, okay, let's, let's entertain this scenario for a second. Let's, if these new players were to come from the seaweed industry, mm-hmm. does that mean that the seaweed industry will need to get more savvy around building, designing tasty food products, yeah. knowing how to build that market downstream and make seaweed a serious player? In yeah, the I think industry? so. I think uh, both making the ingredient attractive, but also have the capacity to deliver. If you're in the food industry, you need to know food practices, not just being a big grower, right? And the first question we get asked a lot is also, okay, but can you deliver? How many tons can you have? And for some uh, players that are not too big, it's it's hard to make that commitment. You need to resource a certain size in uh, in that sense to, to one, hmm. be able to, to deliver, and two, be able to deliver with high quality and do it consistently. So we actually spoke with a fellow a colleague in the business about the wine industry where you do that. And you can also make kind of blends, blending seaweed from different farms or blending wine from different farms when you run out of stock, right? And yeah, then you, yeah, of, you, you blend it from different wine yards and then you get, you get a good wine because you cannot get one batch from just one farm, right? But that kind of became becomes your wine if you take it from three farms. And I think might, that might be the case in, in seaweed in the future. You need to blend from several fragmented players to get to deliver the order, but then you do it going forward also. So I do see that consolidation in the future is needed for some people to really step up and be able to deliver capacity. Although we grow 100 tons per year right now, we're, that's that's nothing when you're going to have an established business. It's uh, We need to grow at least tenfold in the coming years. On the supply side? Yeah. Okay. So, well, obviously the supply side needs to grow. That's, that's, that makes sense. But we're saying the, the bottleneck is perhaps developing that market downstream and having these new players coming in mm-hmm. uh, with innovative products. Is this the job of the, the farmers, of the, the seaweed farming companies 
through vertical integration or do we need new entities, specialized companies? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think most seaweed companies struggle with that question. How far, or to say, how, how far downstream can we integrate without being too wide in our value chain and, and our offering? Mm. I suppose, sorry to jump in, but I suppose yeah. you know, the follow-up on that is how much down does it make sense to go? Yeah. For, for, for somebody that is specializing on farming seaweed, how mm -hmm. far down does it make sense to go in that vertical integration? Yeah, it all depends on your strategy and your cash flow and uh, or cash in the bank, how much you want to, to do it. Because I, I do believe really strong companies can control the whole value chain. Uh, take IKEA as a good example. They control everything end to end, but it took them a lot of years to do so. So I think you really need to find your control positions. What are you good at? Are you good in hatchery and making a lot of good seaweed species? Then you should focus on that. Are you good at processing? Yeah, then you should focus on that. And have you, do you have a product capabilities to making tasty products, focus on that. But I think these middle ways of knowing how to process the seaweed, I think it's way too little work within that. Just think that you're done if you dry the seaweed or just fresh freeze the seaweed. It's not good enough. You need to tailor the products to be more attractive. Let me give you an example of this. Our first customer was doing this plant-based burger. We fresh froze, we had it in a, you know, like a cubicle of maybe 20 kilos and the customer had to, you know, have a not, kind of a sledgehammer to, you know, hack out the seaweed <laughs> to be able to make a bouillon and make the burger. This was maybe five or six years ago. So I think, you know, making a user-friendly product uh, and thinking, okay, how is this going to be in an industry? And I think, uh, honestly, that the smaller, you know, each quantity is, what do you say, that each, each batch is the, the better. So powder or, you know, flakes. It's a good form or a good format because then you can easily put it into an industrial process. And if you cannot do that, then it's not an uh, available product. So you you see drying as the most likely to develop. Yeah, like drying needs to be developed. Right now, it's kind of expensive to dry. I think freezing yeah. is good because it actually minimizes food waste and it kind of it's easy to be out and packed. But if it's frozen, I think it should be you know kind of chopped up and not just, you know, packed in 20 kilo cubicles or so on. So it, it's need to be uh, easy to use in a food process. And I think a lot of people and companies focus way too little on this, or that's, that's what I see at least. Fermentation is also one that I think will emerge and it's kind of energy conservative also using going forward. So I look at a seaweed industry 20 years from now, do you think it will be more a landscape of specialized companies that do one that does the farming, one that does the processing very well, one that does this bit very well, and then evaluate the product very well? Yeah, like maybe, or maybe that's one company also having kind of different uh, entities. Okay. I think maybe that's how it will be. And hopefully it will be consolidation then that you kind of can mix these together. But I think we need to get more specialized in each step both in farming to come down in costs, I think processing to get high value products and compounds and maybe, you know, extract proteins and uh, fibers and minerals and so on. And also doing some, some product innovation and really own that space. Yeah, so it depends a bit on what game you want to play and how you aim to win. Why do you think it's been, well, first of all, do you think it's something that has been a bit overlooked? Have we focused too much on one thing? Yeah, I think this will always be like kind of a pendulum. I think we focus way too little on efficient processing that's actually suited for the food industry. I think that's one bottleneck that it's a lot of money going into that. If you look at the data for especially biorefining, it's also cost a lot to build that capex. But I think in the future, I think it, the pendulum will spring back to, okay, now we have way too little supply. How can we get supply up and do that? And then we get supply up. It's going to be some other bottleneck uh, downstream, right? But I think it's always begins with the customer. So when the customer sees a demand and has a willingness to pay, that's kind of where it needs to start. And I think this has been too little emphasis on that so far, at least, for edible and cultivated seaweed. Why is that, in your opinion? Uh, I think one thing is also that seaweed has gotten kind of a hype, I would say, that you know, cultivated seaweed is really good for the ocean environment. It solves, it's the world's number one climate solver. It's not, but it can really be an important uh, puzzle in solving like the, the global puzzle. Mm -hmm. So I think it's when you, you, you get on a hype, I think that 
people just start cultivating and cultivating more because the market will come, the market will come, right? But uh, we try to have a different approach and starting with the customer and see, okay, what kind of species do, do they like? Uh, how can we grow that more scalable in the ocean and not scale up our farms too much before we actually have proof of that? So I think that's kind of, or I think people also want to believe that the thing they're doing is gonna work out in the end. So you start doing what you know, which is cultivating and growing, right? Yeah. So is it possible that one of the reasons is, uh, like you say, lack of knowledge and the industry started doing what it knew? Already? Yeah, I would say so. Like the, the seaweed industry in, in Europe, it's, it's, it's not so new. Like wild harvested seaweed has been there for many, many years, especially for the alginate industry and, and agar agar and so on. So that's, that's nothing new. I think it's the cultivated and grown seaweed on lines that's a bit more new and then you're a bit more yeah not selective in species but it's harder to grow things beyond kelp in europe but i'm a firm believer that this is the way to go if you look at the aquaculture sector globally the wild harvest is kind of flat and it's the aquaculture that grows i also think in asia it will be a harder time and more competitive since you cannot demand on or rely on cheap labor in 50 years time you need more technology. I think the technology right now is in, in Europe for European companies. So I think that will be a really big differentiator and control position going forward, how to cultivate and farm seaweed super efficiently at a low cost. So with that in mind, for yep. somebody wanting to get started in the industry, wanting to get involved, how can they make the biggest impact? What would be your uh, advice? That, that's a good question. I would first say that it also depends on your capabilities. If you're a marine biologist, I would say go and uh, make uh, palmaria and the red seaweed uh, scalable <laughs> in the ocean and make uh, good protocols for that. If you're a food innovator or a chef, I would say go and make really tasty products and get into the kitchen and do tasty stuff and make it out there, right? So you need to unlock a lot of keys throughout the value chain. But if uh, there's someone who has uh, no skills yet, then I would say go downstream actually and uh, solve the product market fit question because uh, scale we can do, but tasty products, if you make a difference, that's, that's harder. What sort of work have you done and what areas have you explored in the pursuit of product market fit? Yeah, we tried, uh, we ordered, a, we ordered a bunch of seaweed products from around the world, to be honest. We like to taste, to look, to feel, and to, to try it out and see what's working, what's not working. Can we get some inspiration? So that's been a mission of, of mine, at least to, to try as much seaweed products as I can to see, okay, what do I get appealed from and how can we work tomorrow with that and get inspiration from my colleagues, obviously, but I think. Nordic Sea Farm, we, we try to pick what we find is, is best from different companies and, but also from beyond the seaweed industry, what works well in other kind of, you know, food industries and, uh, what is a su success recipe for doing, yeah, a good ingredient brand. This is just, um, out of pure curiosity yeah. where I understand you probably can't say much about those products, but where, mm -hmm. where are they coming from? Oh, it, it's a lot, Europe, uh, Asia. I was at a seaweed conference in North America in Maine uh, this fall. Okay. I bought a bunch of products there, of course. But I think you shouldn't be ashamed of looking to Asian products either. You know, they've developed that over a lot, like a lot of time, a lot of years. They solved some problems taste-wise, product-wise. So seaweed snacks, for example, we looked to and I, I bought a lot from Thailand, for example. And you can buy some yeah noodles and ramen bowls uh, or broths and so on. So I think... From Thailand. Yeah, from Thailand, I think from Japan also. Uh, I do. We do have a small shelf here in our office with a lot of seaweed products on. So I think uh, you should get inspired from what's working actually and what, what works in other cultures and kind of see and tailor it to maybe European or Swedish cuisine in a better way. Have you done any testing toward developing products or, or finding that product market fit? Have you, yeah. have you done, have you yourself as Nordic Sea Farm, have you done any testing? Yes. And if so, what metrics have you used to, to evaluate them? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we tried a lot actually, and we tried to launch a few, uh, what do you say, test products. So one was a seaweed cracker. 
So like uh, Vasa or like Knäckerbröd is really <laughs> big in Sweden. So we launched a gluten-free cracker with uh, baking 20% seaweed, but then it's it's wet and blanched seaweed. So it's not that much in the final product, we, but we tried to bake in as much as we could and find a good a flavor optimization. And we thought we did. And it's right now a really big hit at um, spa hotels and West Coast restaurants uh, here in Sweden. So we do believe that, and we do have a, a small test kitchen here also at the office. So we tried to go there and do testing, both with the crop, raw crop and mixing into different products, uh, doing vinegars, sauces, breads, plant-based meat. You can just take seaweed and mix into, you know, any plant-based mints and so on and see what works. And uh, you shouldn't be scared of trying it into weird, <laughs> new weird products, actually. Yeah, it's it works, all a big, it big experiment. Yeah, yeah. So I think if, if you're in the food industry, you need to, yeah, as you say, you need to eat your own dog food, right? You need to eat what you're working <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah. Although it's not dog food yet. Sure. How do you know? Okay, no, maybe the, the question, the better question is, how will you know that you've got a good one in your, in your hands? What I'm thinking is, you do all these experiments and you're saying, don't be shy, mm -hmm. go for it, yeah. try different weird things. How do you know? How do you get closer? Because I, I guess it's not yeah. gonna, it's not going to be like a one shot, one kill. It's gonna be a progressive. Try little, little changes and get closer and closer. How do you know you're going in the right direction? What metrics do you, would you look at? Yeah, that's good. That's kind of the product development process and having different. If you want to be formal, you can say you have different IDs and work streams that you work with. But to be honest, the first thing we did this was in 2020. I think so we locked ourselves in a test kitchen area for like four days and lived close by and then we said we're gonna make at least 25 recipes with different things and then we're gonna rate them and taste them we did that for four days and then invited a bunch of friends and, and colleagues in the business to to come and try out on the fourth day and we just had a rating session what do we like what don't we like what can be a product and that's actually how the sea, sea cracker as we call it or the ocean cracker was born tried kimchi we tried bread we tried uh, yeah plant-based meats it's uh, and just simple products you know put it in butter and, and do seaweed butter but the cracker was actually really good it was the recipe of a friend's or a colleague's uh, mom she did it at home really? just you know seeds seaweed and some uh, cornmeal and there we go that's really interesting so i think just trying out having some kind of idea this is where we're gonna go and then make a lot of iterations to make the recipe perfect do you have within your team do you have that expertise the food experts or or not what how, how how does your team look like at the moment yeah so we also like going back we, we started with the from the research side and we kind of worked yeah. ourselves forward but also in 2020 we found that we need to work more with food so we got in fact or in contact with a lot of chefs we need to start within the taste sphere so we did so, and we do work with one chef who worked with us part-time, like 30%. And now we actually have a small network of chefs and also uh, also one shareholder that is a professional chef and uh, yeah, a famous chef in Sweden, at least. Uh, so we try to speak with them and get feedback to them and, uh, and go there. But I think the next step will also be to get more food scientists to really get into, okay, it's one thing to do, to taste the products that work, you know, on a plate. One thing to do tasty products that can also be industrialized in the food yeah. process. And that's, you know, the first spice mix we made. The chef made a really good seaweed spice, but it was like three super exotic impossible. spices. Yeah, you know, it's like impossible to source them from anywhere. So, so yeah. that didn't matter, right? So I think you need yeah. to have this mindset, tasty but industrialized. That's kind of, uh, I think, I, something that's a bit missing in, in the industry in general. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things we're running out of time, but there's a couple of things I wanted to cover if, if you're happy sure. to uh, continue. You said something really interesting earlier. I said we were going to come back to it. Here we are. Mm -hmm. Price. Yeah. And the big, the big question, why it's important to prevent seaweed from becoming a commodity. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good one. It also depends on who you are in the value chain. If seaweed becomes a commodity, right? True. I think from, from food producers, I guess yeah. they, they like that it's a commodity because you can press the price and make it more available. From a farmer's point of view, and especially maybe European seaweed, you need to differentiate yourself somehow. 
to make seaweed not a commodity and to keep or maintain price levels at a at a fair price that you can make a healthy profit and grow the business, right? So I think maybe that's the downside if it becomes a commodity too fast, the margins will shrink and so on. So I think you also need to, or each company needs to look in the mirror and say, okay, what's our control position? Is it scope? Can we do more seaweed species in the ocean scalably? Or are we a volume player that we can actually grow seaweed still at a margin, but have super low cost because we have a high volume? Uh, that's also a case. But I think if it becomes a commodity too fast and nobody's making money, then it's uh, no fun business to be in. No, especially if we need to all, you know, all elements, all pieces of the puzzle need to progress together, right? Yes. To avoid as much as possible that pendulum and farmers going out of business because it's gone down, you know, it's a race to the bottom with the price. Yeah. So do you feel the industry is going in the right direction with this? Or are we in need of a course correction already? Yeah, good, good, good question. I, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. I still think that we need to be at competitive price levels, to be honest, because we're not competing also only against seaweed competitors, but also other kind of food ingredients, especially land-based crops and animals, right? So those are the first ones to conquer, I would say. So I think still we need to get down in price to, to be attractive, but I also think that looking at and speaking with colleagues, would you say other competitors or colleagues in the business, mm -hmm. We do see that more and more sales are going up, which I think is a really good sign because that means the demand is going up and I think it's going to say boom, and then it's going to be supply shortage and it's a race again. But and I think that, swings, that, swings. Yeah, but I think that's a much more healthy problem to have. That's kind of like if you look to the salmon, salmon industry, it's the same thing there that people want it. So you need to increase supply and to get people to meet more healthy. And I still think it's if it's a supply problem, and we know that if seaweed replaces other kind of less sustainable ingredients, especially meats, but also plant, land land-based plants, then we can make a difference, make our planets feel better. So I think if we have a supply problem, that's a good sign because then we need to build out so we can be more regenerative in going forward. I want to pick up on something you just said. You said colleagues, and then you said competitors. Yeah. Where are we? Where are we? Do you think? Is uh, it? Is it? Does this feel collaborative, or is yeah, it getting would, more competitive? Uh, no, I would still say it's really collaborative. We or we try to be at least. So we, it also depends on some things you you never share. For example, your seedling protocols. I would say that's again that's a secret for everyone. But when it comes to technology development, uh, harvest methods, and so on. It's kind of my experience is the more you give, the more you get back in that sense. Yeah. So far, at least, uh, hopefully we'll, or hopefully maybe sometime will come that you get more competitive in the future. But I think we, we know that if we open up, we can share resources and we can help each other process. We can share things and help the industry progress more. And I think if we can go faster there, then we compete with soybeans, for example, then, okay, let's make soybeans go out of business faster. Then, then we can make a difference, right? Yeah. Okay, last question. You seem to be a strong believer. Sorry if I'm saying something you don't correct me if I'm saying something uh, that is not true, but uh, you mentioned a few times other species. Yes. What do you see as the most exciting area of opportunity to explore in the near future in terms of other species? Yeah, that's a lot to be done, but I think growing other or more high value species scalable in the ocean. I think that's a real key to unlocking a lot of seaweed's potential. Take, uh, yeah, palmaria or dulse, for example, the red seaweed, also called the ocean bacon in some uh, areas. Yeah, yeah. If you can grow that on scale and really come down in price, that's a huge game changer. For us, doing just the sea lettuce, which is 30% protein in, in dry matter, that's also a game changer for us. And a lot of both chefs and customers are super excited to get their hands on it. It's a bit trickier, a bit more dense than the sugar kelp, but it has much high value. So I think I hope to see not only these two, but even more species going forward to grow on scale. Because I, uh, to be honest, I don't really believe growing seaweed on land because then we're back to, you know, using arable land and very also ocean near lands to grow it. So why build houses around the ocean where you can grow in the ocean, right? So, yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that's, uh, I, I hope that more companies will, will follow and put more money and effort into research of getting these species out in, in the ocean. What are the challenges linked with bringing 
these new other other species. Yeah, it doesn't stick on the ropes. That's the short answer. It doesn't stick on the ropes, <laughs> so it can't get. So it's not so much away. that it can. All right, so it's not so much that it can. It can be farmed in Europe and North America. You need just need strong protocols. That's all. So you need the strong, really strong seedlings that stick on the rope and and can like you know in an open ocean environment. It's it's harsh out there sometimes. You need to find good spots. You need to find good seedlings and good protocols to to make it happen. Uh, we managed to do so with with sea lettuce. We hope to manage it with palmaria, but there's no guarantee. It's biology, so you need to uh, work quite quite hard with it. Is temperature an issue? Uh, yeah, it could be. I think it depends on the species. You, you see, we grow in warm waters, of course, also. So I think you you need to you pick the local plants that grows in your area and then just make them put them out there again. So, but temperatures becomes an issue if you don't farm or take it up in time. Then things grow on it that you do not want to grow on it. We we were talking about sea lettuce, dolls. What are they good for? Is it any spe- specific properties and uses? Yeah, so dolls is also really high in protein. I think thirty uh, percent. We actually managed to get up to thirty-five percent in that one. It also grows quite fast. Uh, it has some other flavor characteristics. Yeah, like the smoky bacon flavor, for example, when you fry it, and also some other minerals. So it's it's super exciting, I think, and uh, it's it's big in uh, other parts of the world food-wise. So again, on a on a food, um, yeah, on a food perspective. On a food perspective, we can, uh, yeah, this, well, let's open the, that bucket another time, you know, for, <laughs> yeah, smoking, yeah. you know, with like methane reductions and so on. There's a lot to be done in, in a lot of verticals. We, we we might do that in the future also, or I would say we will do that in the future. Yeah. Uh, cosmetics, skincare, biomaterials. But uh, for now, food is our top one priority to, to be world-class. And it's certainly a good priority to have, considering the challenges. Yeah, like 25% of uh, greenhouse emissions come from food, right? So, yeah, let's start there. This is probably a good time to bring this to a close. Uh, Simon, is there anything you would like to mention in closing that we haven't brought up? Anything that you'd like to point people to? Yeah, dare to eat more seaweed, I would say. <laughs> no, yeah, but, good uh, one. Yeah, no, but otherwise I really enjoyed speaking and it's always nice to uh, yeah get inspired from speaking uh, about seaweed and how it can make a difference going forward. Oh, it's been great. It's been great. Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a really fun conversation. And, and thank you for, um, thank you so much for taking the time and, and thank you for bringing us, you know, a, br- a different perspective as well, you know? Yeah. Some of these questions and, and sort of perspectives, they may go overlooked sometimes. So it's, it's been really good. Yeah. And yeah. Really, well. really fun talking to you. Look, obviously you guys can learn more about Nordic Sea Farm at nordicseafarm.com. Are there any resources, websites, recommendations, call to action, any anything at all? Yeah, you, you can find some recipes at our website. Let's follow us on LinkedIn and we're mainly active on Instagram also where we can follow more day-to-day activities. Okay, stay tuned.